Well, it's a rather nostalgic day today as I come to the last verses of the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. I think it was in December of 2014 that we began the book of Isaiah, and we've preached through all of the chapters except for 10. And we found some jewels of Scripture texts in the midst of all of that that many never hear about or see or discover because there's just so much about God's Word that it seems difficult to be able to consume it and digest all of it. But God has commanded us to do that, to be faithful in the study of his word. The book of Isaiah is indeed an amazing book. The city of Jerusalem is an amazing city. Many, many treasures are held there, and many are still yet to be found. When excavations are done around the area of the temple, the Arabs and the Muslims like to take the debris and get it into the junkyard as quickly as possible before the Antiquities Department of the Israeli people can sift through the dirt and sand and find what artifacts might be there. And we know that under the Temple Mound, there are many, many artifacts and things yet to be discovered that will confirm the authenticity and reality of the Bible. Can you imagine during the first half of the tribulation period, when the two witnesses are overseeing the rebuilding of the temple and they break into that temple mound, the discoveries they will make during that period of time of things of ancient times that confirm the scriptures. Well, it's an amazing city and some of the amazing places there is, is the house of the book. The house of the book is the memorial or the building that houses the scroll of Isaiah that was found in Qumran in 1948. It's an amazing scroll of great significance. And as you go there, you walk up on this pedestal, which is designed like a scroll, and you find unraveled all the way around that pedestal the great scroll of Isaiah. Uh, when you look at it, you would think, this is it, and they'll let you think that. But the real one is really down underneath in a cement bunker protected from any kind of danger. And this is an exact replica of that original document. The amazing thing about that document is that the oldest manuscript we had of the Old Testament before the discovery of this manuscript was 1200 A.D. And this manuscript from Qumran dates back to about 100 or 150 B.C. So the discovery of this particular scroll took us back to uh, 1,200 years or more to, toward the origination of the source. And amazingly enough, it was found by comparing the documents that they were uh, nearly, with minor deviation only, the same as one another, indicating that God indeed has preserved the text of Scripture down through the ages. It's an amazing text. And it's just so awesome to be able to stand there and look at it. Well, we're going to take our Bibles today and take our outlines and, and think some final thoughts about the book of Isaiah as we look at the last verses, verses 15 to 24 of Isaiah 66. I tried to determine an outline for that, which you'll find again. It's been published to you before on the front page of the notes. And at first when I read Isaiah chapter 66 in my meditation and thoughts, I thought, well, there doesn't seem to be something. I mean, the Bible is always special, but I didn't feel there was any grand dose ending in this chapter. 
But as I've studied, I've come to find out that it is an amazing chapter and that the subject and sequence of the chapter is very carefully designed by the Holy Spirit to bring our concluding thoughts to this amazing book. The outline of an expositor varies from teacher to teacher, and certainly the outline is not inspired, only the Word of God is. But as I meditated on it and revised and re-revised and re-re-re-revised the outline on this front page, I found that it is very instructive in what God is trying to tell us. You look at that outline, you notice that we first encountered God's transcendence and then the lowliness of man, and yet all God wants of us is faithfulness to believe his word and tremble at his word. We heard the Lord address both the wicked and the God-fearing people. We saw the Lord's amazing provision for his people in a man-child that was born, in a nation that was reborn in a day, and in provision through the end and the joy in Jerusalem in the kingdom. Now we're going to pick up today with verse 15, which is the Lord's judgment on the wicked. We're going to go through and see how God is developing our thinking to challenge us to be sure that we've examined ourselves and are right before God. As we enter that time, though, let's pause and ask God to direct our thinking. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this precious book of Isaiah. Lord, the, the discovery of this scroll in the providence of your, of your universe, of your world, Lord, it's so amazing as it confirms for us, though we need not confirmation other than what we already have in the Word of God, it confirms for us the authenticity and the accuracy of the book of Isaiah that we hold in our hands and in, in another sense, the whole Bible. We pray, Lord, that as we look at these precious words today, that you'll guide our thoughts, that you open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us. And Lord, that you would just speak to us through your word today in the illumination of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we open our Bibles, we first of all want to think a minute as we come to this closing chapter of a, another Scripture text in Revelation chapter 11. You might want to turn there. and It's always special to look at a text in your Bible and not just reprint it in your notes. So turn to Revelation chapter 11, verses 10 to 13. And listen as I read these verses that conclude the New Testament in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 10. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And I beheld, I come quickly. And behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me to give every man according to the, his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, I could easily get to preaching on these verses and not get to Isaiah, but I want to just use these verses to introduce us as we move into the last chapter of Isaiah today. I want you to notice these particular things about what is said here. The Holy Spirit in this text, through the words 
of the Lord speaking to us says, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. That is a way of saying that his coming is imminent. And as we looked at the Old Testament prophecies here, we found that they were looking for his first coming, although they confused it with the glory of his second coming. And we, as we open the book of Isaiah, are looking forward to his second coming, his first coming already having taken place. I want you to notice that what we think and what decisions we make each day of our lives can have eternal consequences. We take life rather casually sometimes. But every day as we decide who we're going to serve, what we're going to do, how we're going to think, we are making decisions that have eternal consequences. Eternal consequences in terms of our eternal uh, habitat, whether it will be in heaven or in hell, and decisions about serving the Lord and the rewards that he gives for faithful service. Your decisions today are important. You need to make them consciously and carefully. It says, uh, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. For many who do not know Jesus Christ, his coming is a terrible, uh, fearful thing. But for those who know him as Savior and are faithfully serving him, his return is a wonderful thing that we look forward and rejoice in. Unless you may think otherwise, remember this. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first letter of the Greek language and the last letter of the Greek language. There is no other but him, first and last. He is the one who is the beginning and the end. There's nowhere else to look. There's, another, there's no other alternative but the alternative, the alternative of a shed blood Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the God-man who died for our sins. And so there is a time coming when it will all be over. Will you be filled with regret in hell for eternity? Or with gratefulness and praise with thanksgiving with the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever? What a wonderful prospect. And if you are a believer, or as, Isaiah, or as Isaiah puts it, one who is of a contrite spirit and trembleth at his word, will what you have done for Christ be worthy of the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant? There is great gravity in this last chapter of Isaiah. Having said that, we turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 15, and we see, first of all, the Lord's judgment on the wicked in verses 15 through 18a. Reading there, for behold, Isaiah 66, 15, for behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, saith the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts." 
For behold, the Lord will come with fire. The Lord is associated with fire throughout the Bible as a part of his person and his being. It is necessarily so because he is holy and he demands holiness from those who would serve him, both in terms of faithfulness in the power of the Holy Spirit and in terms of imputed righteousness that comes from knowing Christ as Savior. One uh, commentator has wrote these words, To those who have been made holy by his grace, the fire of his character poses no horrors. But those who are depending on their own efforts to stand in the presence will find him a roaring blast furnace. Several scriptures throughout the Bible, and these aren't all inclusive, talk about the association of God with fire. It says in Psalm 18, verse 8, There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth, devoured. Coals were kindled by it. A picture here of his fury, of his fury, of his anger. And then in Psalm 50, verse 3, it says, Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. That is his holiness that demands that the way be cleared before him, before a holy God can come into a wicked world. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, it says, For our God is a consuming fire. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, it said there that his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as flame of fire. His eyes could look at you and see right through you. His eyes were flames of fire. No barrier could stand before them or can stand before them. He can see what you're thinking he can see what you're imagining. He can see what you thought every moment of your life until now. Totally penetrating in his piercing look to know our hearts and our minds. Well, when we read this verse, for behold, the Lord will come with fire, we have to ask ourselves, since we believe that the Bible is literal and that we should take it seriously for what it says, we have to ask ourselves, when is this time when he will come with fire? And as we think about this, we come to the conclusion that the only time this could be is the time of Armageddon. Now, bear with me, because even though this may be familiar to many of you, it may not be to all of you, but here is our timeline that we have been looking at. And uh, we're in the current church age, which began at Pentecost, uh, 50 days after the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And during this church age, we are, we are introduced into the body of Christ, baptized in the body of Christ when we put our faith in him for salvation. And understand, as in all the ages and times, that we are sinners who have no hope before a holy God and must put our trust in the substitute for our sins, Jesus Christ. The church age will end with the rapture. The rapture could happen at any moment. 
It ha has been pending and could have happened at any moment throughout the last 2,000 years and for into the future, whether it be today, tomorrow, or a year from now, but it is imminent. And uh, Bible-believing Christians think because of the rebirth of the nation of Israel that it is very close. At the rapture of the church, all the Christians, the people who have believed in Christ from Pentecost to that time, will be resurrected into glorified sinless bodies that will be capable of living with a holy God in the eternity of heaven. And those who are alive at that time, if it should be today, that would be those of you here who know Christ as Savior, will be caught up with them, given glorified bodies, and they will all return to heaven with the Lord in the air. And there in heaven they will dwell with him. At the time of the rapture, shortly thereafter, there will be a man arise upon the earth, a prince who shall come, Daniel calls him, who shall be a brilliant politician. And he will make a covenant with many peoples in the world for seven years, a seven-year covenant which will promise hope and peace to the people and seemingly be a solution to the international crises that we have today that no one has a solution for. However, he is in reality not a godly solution to the world's problems, but in fact a, a puppet, a manifestation of Satan taking control of a wicked world, which now has been released from the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in that the church is gone and there is no longer that restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there will be a tribulation that will take place that will last seven years. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But at the end of that seven years, there will be a great battle in which all the wicked will gather against the God, people of God in Jerusalem and seek to destroy them. And in the midst of that event, the Lord Jesus Christ will reveal himself returning from heaven, which is the picture that we showed to you just a moment ago. That is the conception of Jesus Christ returning at Armageddon. And he'll descend and uh, kill all of his enemies and then he will usher in a 1,000-year kingdom in which Jesus Christ will rule on the throne of David in Jerusalem for a 1,000 years. Now, that's familiar to many of you, but some may be a little bit new. But the idea here is that God, during this time of the tribulation, is pouring out upon the earth judgment because man has continued to rebel against him for century after century after century. We're going to refer to another chart here, which is a picture of the tribulation period. This period right here, the seven-year period, is pictured in more detail in this chart, which has the rapture of the church and then the revelation of Christ. And here is Armageddon, the revelation of Christ. As we look at the uh, description of the Lord returning in fire, this seems like the only appropriate place for us to be able to apply it. We see that fire is associated with the Lord in this, in this time because his judgment is coming upon the earth. We need to understand that when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, when God gave them one simple command, not to eat of one particular tree, and they violated that command and rebelled against their maker in doing that, and fell from his grace at that time, fell from his approval into sin, that a curse came upon the whole world. And God was under no obligation to allow Adam and Eve to live any longer. 
But rather than killing them, he killed an animal. And he took the skin of that animal and clothed them. And that animal's death was a substitute for their death. So that they did not stand condemned, but for the moment could be forgiven and allowed to continue on. Now, of course, that animal could not do anything to save them, but that animal was a picture, an illustration of a Savior who would come in the future who was a God-man, a virgin-born man who was both fully God and fully man, who would die as a sacrifice for their sins, and his death would be effective in totally removing their sin and not just covering it. Now, God did not have to do that. He could have killed Adam and Eve at that time and put judgment upon them. In fact, any time down through history of the world, God could have intervened and said, enough, and wiped out everybody in the world and been just in doing it, apart from those who had put their faith in him, according to his instruction. And he would have been perfectly just in doing that. And so now we have a world during the tribulation period that all believers have been removed from at the rapture. And during this seven-year period, there are two witnesses who appear who are believers who introduce the faith back on the earth, all believers having been raptured off the earth. And there will be 144,000 Jews who will come and who will minister and reach the world with the gospel. Well, in the midst of all this, we see God's judgment coming upon the world step by step. Elijah, the two witnesses, one is Elijah. Elijah was a prophet who brought down fire from heaven. And he is one who is said to be responsible to restore all things during this time. And we understand that to be to restore the temple of Israel and their ancient worship practices, although somewhat different than what, the, what they were anciently. In the midst of this event, we have Gog and Magog after three and a half years. A northern king, Gog, gathers a multitude of nations and sweeps south, wiping out all the nations in his path and entering into the promised land, into the pleasant land, which is Israel, and killing the Antichrist. And, and then he goes to Egypt, and when he hears the Antichrist is alive again, right here, he comes back in a fury and stations himself near Jerusalem and is about to come, uh, repeat his, uh, his attempt to conquer that area when suddenly, mysteriously, God intervenes and a series of judgments fall upon him, one of which is fire and brimstone. The first trumpet judgment of the seven trumpet judgments that are in the Bible and Revelation, the first trumpet judgment is fire mingled with blood. The fourth vile judgment, which is near the end of the tribulation, is the power to scorch men with fire through the sun. Babylon, it says, the mysterious Babylon, which is the city capital of this kingdom at this period of time, the worldly capital, shall be destroyed utterly by fire. And at the revelation, his eyes were as a flame of fire. And those that attacked at Armageddon, the wicked people of the world will, who have refused the gospel preached to them will be committed to eternal fire called hell. This all sounds somewhat discouraging to us, but we are at a time when God's grace is still very, very active, just as it is today, and people are being saved who trust in him. 
But people who continue to harden their hearts and refuse his grace find themselves facing the Savior with burning eyes and find themselves finally condemned and without hope. It says in verse 16, For the fire and by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. The sword of the Lord is his word. Our God is so powerful, so wonderful. I, uh, I speak the word to my children and grandchildren sometimes, a word of command or instruction, and it, it doesn't seem to happen. It, it just doesn't always get done. Now, a lot of times, most of the time it does, but sometimes it just doesn't get done. But the Lord spoke his word, and the whole world and universe came into being at his word out of nothing. Amazing statement in Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. It reflects his great power, the great power of his word. Well, he will come by a sword, but he will come by fire. It says, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Many who during the seven-year period refused the gospel preached unto them, which could bring them deliverance and salvation, and will bring many people deliverance and salvation during that time when they put their trust in him. But if you've not put your trust in him, you will face the fire and the wrath of a holy God because we are sinners and we deserve nothing better. Over the years, I've been greatly blessed, as you, you who are here know, by the ministry of Dr. John C. Wickham, Jr. Uh, he's an amazing individual. And as I've gone through the book of Isaiah, I, I need to pause here and give him credit. I have been listening to his series. He uh, taught the book of Isaiah in three semesters, uh, divided up, and uh, went through the whole book. And as I prepared my messages, I generally would listen to his lecture first to get oriented, meditate upon the text, and then do my language studies and convert other sources. Dr. Wickham, who uh, was one of my professors in seminary and served as a professor for many, many years and then as a Bible teacher, had a unique way of being able to combine teaching with application. I always have tried to learn that so that there is substance to the message in terms of uh, in terms of learning about what the text is saying, but not just a dry academic kind of study, but a consideration of the text that not only explains it intellectually, but uses the Holy Spirit to convict and work in our lives, to convince us of our need to change our actions and our thoughts as a result of what God has to say. And the thoughts that follow here are thoughts that uh, come from him, and I, I thought, you know, I'd just like you to hear this. This is one of my favorite passages, one, passage, one of my favorite uh, recordings of Dr. Wickham, which shows his ability to teach combined with his ability to uh, motivate and challenge, uh, showing a little bit, too, of his personality. And I just wanted to share this three or three and a half minute clip with you, which covers this next section of the outline. The slain by the Lord will be what? Many. Billions will die. 
from Armageddon to the 1335th day in the first 75 days of the thousand year kingdom. Billions will die. To say nothing of what's going to happen at the end of the millennium as we've seen. Say, my, really? God would do that to people? Well, friends, just think of this fire motif here now. We're coming full circle on that issue. You remember Isaiah 1 starts with fire at the end for those who reject, pervert, twist, deny, suppress God's precious words of truth. Uh, listen to Isaiah 33 on this fire thought. This is really scary to me. Scary. He's going to ask you a question about the fire. You ready? Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? Good question. When God begins to burn people, you think you'll survive? Think you can handle that? I'm not sure, Lord. In fact, I just sort of made a decision. I don't want to try. I don't. By the way, you know what? We're all surrounded by fire. Eyes like a flame of fire that look down upon us from Jesus Christ if we're hypocrites and deniers of his will and word. Fire underneath us in the heart of the earth where people even now are in agony waiting for the lake of fire, their final destiny. And the whole world, you see, is just held together by some invisible thread called the long-suffering of God, which, when stopped, plunges the whole world into eternal destruction. Walk softly on God's planet, folks. It's not our property. <laughs> We're here by His mercy. And we breathe His air, drink His water, walk on His planet as if it's ours. Or it got here somehow, who knows how, by some chance things for billions of years. God says, I'm going to talk to you through fire. Oh, I don't like that. You know why? It, it, it uh, threatens my security. See? Are you interested in security? Everybody is. All kinds of insurance policies, you know, and protection things. and You, you can have them installed in your home. A very elaborate electronic system. If a thief touches the door, the alarm rings, and the police come, you're, you're secure, aren't you? Have another thought, please. You'll never have an alarm system that'll allow you to escape God. Yes, the Lord will come in fire. Lord will come in fire. There may be some that haven't uh, been with us for all of our messages and all of this, and it seems like a very dim, horrible portrayal of God, doesn't it? We have to put it in the context of the whole Bible and understand that for decades and centuries, God has withheld his wrath and offered his salvation through the preaching of the gospel and the word of God for decades and centuries. He has intervened here and there with judgments upon his people and judgments on the earth that should alert us that he is there and active. But he has been long-suffering. 
As Dr. Whitcomb put it, the whole world is held together by some invisible thread called the long-suffering of God. Well, another commentator says, here all God's triumphs over simple humanity are caught up together in a climatic statement. Isaiah is no doubt, is in no doubt that evil will not prevail upon the earth. And this great climax of the tribulation time takes us and introduces us to the kingdom and then to the eternal state in which there will be no more sin. Well, as we move on, we find that the judgment consumes all the abominable. First of all, he comes with fire. Second of all, his judgment is universal. And third of all, he consumes all the abominable. The abominable are those who blatantly disregard his word and go off into paths of sin that are far, far, far from what God intended for them and do it in the case of his people Israel, despite centuries and years of revelation, warning, and example. And people will try to justify themselves. You know, uh, whenever you're confronted about something in your life that is not what it should be, something you've done or whatever, the first impulse is to somehow defend yourself. Uh, When Adam was confronted with his sin in the Garden of Eden, he blamed the woman. When we are confronted with our sin, we have a multitude of excuses. It's uh, something in our background, or it's something that happened in our lives that we had no control over, or it's some extenuating circumstance that has caused us not to be able to do what God wants us to do. And Oftentimes, even people who do not have a Bible or know about the Bible have a sense of guilt that they've done something wrong. And that is the Holy Spirit working in your life to convince you that you do need need a Savior. The Bible says that rather than seeking to come up with an excuse, we need to look for someone in whom we can put our trust who is willing to be a substitute for us. And that is only the person of Jesus Christ. I remember when I was a young boy, I had an erector set. I don't know, erector sets still around today. There are a multitude of different toys and things that are around today. And I would uh, take my erector set and I would build various things that I considered to be something else. I'd take a cardboard box and put a frame in it and make the motor turn a wheel and I pretend it was some kind of a grand transmitter or some kind of a super secret uh, piece of equipment. And of course, it did nothing. I was just pretending. That's how we look before God when we, rather than facing our actions and their futility and their sinfulness, we try to justify ourselves in our own mind. That's what was happening here. They that sanctify themselves who try to make themselves think that they are set apart to God, when in reality they are doing things that God hates. And he wants us, rather than to make excuses, he wants us to forsake our wicked ways and repent and turn to him and his provision for us in our wrongdoing, which is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
As we continue to look at Jesus Christ as a judge when he comes at this time of Armageddon, we find that he has a judgment that is with perfect knowledge going on in your outline. Isaiah 66, verse 18, first part of it. For I know their works and their thoughts. God knows everything about us. It's part of the idea of his eyes being a flame of fire. And in particular, verse 17, but with regard to all nations and tongues, such that he knows the righteous from the wicked. And he will judge with perfect knowledge. In Isaiah chapter 11, there is a description of Jesus Christ as Messiah who will reign during the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And Isaiah chapter 11 describes him this way. And shall make, make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. You know, oftentimes I've judged different situations. I've uh, made mistakes in what happened. I, I was a counselor at Purdue University, a residence hall. And uh, I, I did that for one semester and then two semesters following. And we had training in the course of all that. And one of the things they taught us was be careful about making quick judgments when you may not have all the information. You walk into a college dorm room and you see something before you and you draw a conclusion, this is what is going on there. And uh, you need to stop and think and do a little bit of research and thinking to see if all that's going on there is really what it appears to be before you pass judgment. And that's the thought here. But men often, even when they do their best, do not know all the details, circumstances, but when Jesus comes, he will see all the, all the circumstances, all of the past, all of the things that were an influence, and, and he knows the degree of guilt and the guilt of everyone. Well, the Lord will come with fire to judge the world for its sin over many centuries. But... There will be a message that will go forth in all of this. The Lord's emissaries will be sent forth. Now, at the back of your outline, there's about three or four pages where I wrote out the material of the next section here for you to look at a little bit later as I thought about it. And I really struggled with these verses. I spent a lot of time on this section of the Scripture because I couldn't reconcile the sequence of events here with the sequence of events that I understood studying other Scripture and that we've taught you. And so uh, there's a little bit of explanation of that in the back. But for our purpose here today, I want to look at chapter 66, verse 18, and so forth, and, uh, and think about it. Look at 66, 18, be picking up there in the middle of the verse. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. When is this going to happen? If this, a lot, of, a lot of people, when they study the book of Isaiah, they just say all these things have to do with describing the character of God. They don't relate them to specific events that are going to take place in the future. But if you read this text the way it's written, it says that Jesus Christ, the God, is, is here. He is the God who's been spoken of. Uh, he's going to come again. He's going to come, and we just now identified his coming at the time of Armageddon. But here's another event, and, it shall, and it, sh it shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. When is that going to happen? Well, we look at this text, 
And we say, well, who are all nations and tongues? You read that initially and you think that means everybody. All the peoples of all the nations, all the people of the different linguistic groups, all of them are going to come and see the glory of God. Everyone on the earth. That's the way we might read it. But we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. And when we get down to verse 19, we see that there's a group of people that God will send forth. It says, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations. We'll talk about that verse in more detail in a moment. But individuals, people are going to be sent to the nations. To the nations, look at the end of the verse, that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. So even after the event that we're looking at in verse 18b, there is in the future people who still have not seen the Lord's glory. So we have to come to the conclusion and when it says, I will gather all nations and tongues, it doesn't mean all the people of all the nations or all the tongues of all the nations, but it means there will be representatives there of all the nations, no exceptions, and of all the different linguistic groups with no exceptions. Uh, and, and the revelation in your notes, it says, what will this be? And we talked about the revelation. That's discussed more in notes later. We don't have time to talk about that now. So... Uh, this means that there will be a time when the representatives of all the nations and language groups of the world will see the glory of God. Uh, when will this happen? Well, you might think at the end of the tribulation, at the revelation, and there's some reasons for thinking that, but the sequence doesn't work out. And so if you think a little bit further about it, we think that in the midpoint of the tribulation, there is the battle of Gog and Magog right here. And remember that Gog attacks Antichrist and apparently kills him and then goes down to Egypt and then hears a rumor of his being alive again and returns to Jerusalem to do the job right this time. And when he returns to Jerusalem right here, mysteriously he is totally annihilated without any chance of, no, no resistance, no chance of resistance, no one to help him, he simply is annihilated. And in the conjunction of that, in the commentary in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, which is about this event, which, which actually spreads over both sides, we talked last week about a timeline, uh, things get complicated because you have so many events to get into one chart. That's why many times there are many charts. The Battle of Gog and Magog really starts here but doesn't really end till here because it's after he comes back that his armies are destroyed. But we read in conjunction with that God's commentary after the defeat of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapter 39. Look in your notes. Follow along in your notes now. Ezekiel 39, 21 to 23. This is what God says after the destruction of God, the king of the north. And I will set my glory among the heathen. Now correlate that to the verse we're looking at. I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. It goes on. And all heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid upon them. Again, all the heathen, that's all the nations, same thing. So the house of Israel shall know 
that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. What he's saying here is, after the battle of Gog and Magog, Gog has come here and has attacked Antichrist and now is returning to finish the job. And God supernaturally intervenes and totally destroys him. And the world sees this destruction. And the world is amazed and set back. And through this destruction, which is the sign we'll talk about in a moment, the world is turned, many people in the world are turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they see his glory through his action upon Gog and Magog at this time in history. These verses show that. And I will set my glory among the heathen, Ezekiel 39, 21. We're moving on to verse 19. So, verse 18b, It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. We're putting that right here at the destruction of Gog, the king of the north. That is the sign, and that is where there will be representatives of all the nations somehow in God's providence that will see God's glory as it is revealed through this destruction of Gog without hope or without resistance. Now we go to verse 19, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations. So the sign among them is the destruction of Gog, and then we have those who escape. Uh, so we, first of all, he says, I will set a sign. The Hebrew word for sign is the word oath. And there's a, another man whose commentary I relied on, give credit for many of the people that have helped me in books to study this. His name is Buxbazin. Buxbazin is a Jewish man who came to know Christ as his Savior. He is a, a Jewish Christian, Hebrew Christian. And he was very moved. He was very... Uh, Teach, he had much ability in teaching. He, of course, knew the language well, and so he wrote his own translation and commentary in the book of Isaiah that I have used in my study. He also was the founder of an organization called This for My Glory, which publishes a magazine that is very helpful. Now, as with any magazine, there are going to be things there that you wouldn't necessarily agree with, but for the most part, there are some really good Bible studies in this. And periodically, they offer uh, a free subscription to people who've not ever had the magazine before for a year. And if you'd be interested in that, being, having me turn your name in for that, I'd be glad to do that. It's a wonderful resource and help in terms of Bible study and prophecy. And so, Books Basin defines this Hebrew word this way. It is indicating a miraculous manifestation of divine providence or power. That's what the defeat of Gog was. It was a marvelous, miraculous manifestation of divine providence. It all happened in providence, but God rained down uh, the pestilence and fire upon them. It is a sign among them. Who's them? Well, referring back to the previous verse, he says, I will gather all nations in tongues. So all nations in tongues is them. So look to verse 19, and I will set a sign, the defeat of Gog, among them all the nations. And I will send those that escape of them unto the nations. Who are those that escape? Well, you'll remember that after the destruction of Gog, the king of the north, the two witnesses here 
were killed by the Antichrist and have been resurrected into heaven, and they're gone. And the king of the north has brought with him a coalition of nations that are all destroyed with him there. And he defeated the king of the south, Egypt, who is now no longer. So a great power vacuum has come into being as a result of the destruction of the king of the north, Gog. And the Antichrist steps into that situation and takes control of the world. Because, number one, there's a vacuum. The world's in disarray because all these nations have been broken down. And the Antichrist, who is resurrected from the dead, something that seems very strange to us, but the Bible says that's what happens, now is marveled at by the whole world, virtually the whole world. And so the world turns to him, and those who don't want to turn to him, he forces toward him, and he takes control of the world. We read about the destruction of God and Dan Gog in Daniel 11:45, And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. A massive, sweeping northern coalition destroyed. And no resistance came from them, and there was no hope of their deliverance. And the explanation is given by Ezekiel. Ezekiel 38, 22, Ezekiel 38 and 39 being about Gog and Magog. And I will plead against him with pestilence. Look, look, at number these, with pestilence, number one, with blood, number two. I don't know what that means. It must mean some kind of illness in which they bleed, perhaps through the nose or membranes of the body. There are diseases like that. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him, the whole army, and overflowing rain, so we have floods. Number three. Number four, gray hailstones. Number five, fire. And then finally, number six, brimstone. Boy, that would be kind of a hard situation to get out of. But that is the judgment that God brought upon Gog. And that was the sign to the people that God was active and intervening in world's event. It was a God thing. And it showed that God will be in control. It's a strange thing, isn't it? The Antichrist was God's great enemy of all times. He was the one who would be controlled by Satan. And rather than empowering the king of the north in his coalition to defeat and take over the, anti, uh, the Antichrist. When it appeared that he might do so, God removed him from the scene, creating the vacuum which caused the events that followed. God is in control. God is in control. No man would ever come up with a plot like that, would you? Would you write a plot like that? That's not a man-made thing. As we read through our Bible, we're always turning in a different direction than we would have thought God would have gone. The one that made sense. And you know that's true in our lives too. God brings into our lives or turns us in ways that don't make sense. But it's part of his plan in his long-range goal of bringing the world back in reconciliation to him. God used it as a sign, verse 23 of Ezekiel 38. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. 
Looking back at verse 18b, it shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. And he says, thus will I magnify myself. Glory means uh, radiant appearance, uh, admiration. And so he will magnify himself. The world will see him magnified. What about those of us who escape? Who is that? Back again to verse 19. Go look at verse 19. And I will set a sign, the destruction of Gog, among them, the nations, including Israel. And I will send those that escape of them, those who see the sign and escape something, unto the nations. What is the escape all about? Well, look at the course of events here. The course of events after the destruction of the king of the north. The Antichrist is killed by the king of the north. Satan is cast down from heaven. And then the Antichrist is resurrected, and God, the king of the north, is destroyed by God. And immediately... The holy temple, which the two witnesses have been reconstructing for true, genuine worship to God, now is defiled by the abomination of desolation, which the Antichrist sets up in the holy of holies in the temple. It is, in fact, an animated image of some sort of the Antichrist in which Antichrist is declaring himself God instead of the true God, who is God. He is a man making himself God by putting an image or a figure of himself in the holiest place of the temple of the Hebrew people and then declaring that he is God. And the world, who has seen that he's been resurrected from the dead, and the world who sees his tremendous power thinks, how can anybody defeat him? If you kill him, he just comes back again. And it looks like everything is out of control, and the Antichrist moves forward at his will. And he turns his wrath, the wrath of Satan, the Antichrist, onto Israel. When the beginning of this took place, the beginning of the tribulation period, he made a covenant with many which brought peace. And the prophets were able to restore, as Elijah was commissioned, the temple. But now in the midst of this, even as predicted in Daniel chapter 9, he breaks that covenant and he turns against Israel. And, and he puts all the people of the world in subjection. The wrath of Satan and Antichrist focused on Israel. And the world is forced in total subjection to the Antichrist. But there will be believers who survive and live through these events. The 144,000 sealed Jewish men, sealed by God. They can perhaps be hurt or lamed, but they can't be killed and they can't be shut up. And they carry the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world. Believing Jews, believing Gentiles who suffer through these difficult times. And then he says, look at our verse again, and I will set a sign, that's the defeat of God, among them, that's the nations, to whom he's throwing his glory. And I will send those that escape of them into the nations. Those that escape these events of the Antichrist here immediately after this, then he will send them out to the nations during this last three and a half years of the tribulation period. He says, I will send those that escape of them into the nations. I've identified the nations for you, but let's skip down. The nations that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. 
Make no mistake. God takes the church out of the world here at the rapture, but he replaces the church with his two witnesses and the 144,000 witness Jews and others who come to know Christ as a result of their ministry. And God's testimony of salvation continues to go out to a lost, wicked world. And people, even in this time of judgment, when if they don't repent, are going to be burned with fire and destroyed and committed to an eternal hell, have the opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved. In fact, if you turn to the New Testament and you look at Matthew uh, in the New Testament, where is it? Just escaped me. Uh, Matthew 24, 14. Bottom of the center page of the book. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So those who survive this terrible events here will go out into all the world and preach the gospel of the kingdom as confirmed by Matthew and described here in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 19. Now notice what happens, the result of their work. Isaiah 66, 20. And they, the Gentiles and nations, shall bring all your brethren, that's Israelites, for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations, upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel. Gentiles, many Gentile people are going to hear this message of salvation and receive Christ in the midst of these dire circumstances. And when these Gentiles receive Christ, they will understand that the Jewish people are a special people in the eyes of God that he commissioned to be those who care for the scriptures, receive the scriptures and care for them, those who are to be a witness to the world. And they now, un, un, then, not like now, I mean the world would seek to obliterate Israel today, to push them off into the sea, but when they get right with God, and by the way, remember, at the placement of the abomination of desolation, our text told us in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7, 8, and 9, that the nation as a whole would be converted. These aren't the same kind of Israelite people that are in Israel today. These are Israelite people who truly know the Lord and are seeking to save him, and making sacrifices and being martyred and desiring to serve the Lord. People will look to them and say, we want to do all we can to help them. They will gather them and escort them in any way they can back to the Holy Land. Some quotes of commentators about this verse. Oswald writes, although the purpose of the mission to the nations was not to regain the lost members of the house of Israel, that will be one of its results. Uh, Oswald's kind of an interesting character here. I've introduced you to some of the other commentators. He is a United Methodist. But very few people have written detailed, extensive, uh, language-oriented commentaries on the book of Isaiah. And Mr. Oswald spent over 10 years of his life researching and studying, and he wrote two large volumes on the book of Isaiah that are not totally premillennial dispensational, but he is, by taking the language literally, comes very, very close to adopting that kind of a thinking. And that's why his commentary is so valuable, so helpful. 
even though it doesn't totally espouse a premillennial dispensation, just say dispensational, because he seeks to interpret the book literally, he comes to many correct conclusions and many good insights. The nations will go to any extent to get the Jews back to their land and God's holy mountain. Another quote, this time from Booksbazin, the converted Jew I told you about, these exiles should be brought home again by their brethren with the cooperation of converted Gentiles who will put every means of transportation at their disposal. This they will do out of love and reverence for Jehovah, the God of Israel. Go back to the verse. Let's just read it. I didn't read it a moment ago. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith the Lord whatever means they can find. These persons will be brought by the Gentiles as a precious offering to God. It is hard to imagine what more precious offering could be given to him, the remnant of his own chosen people, now having come to their true fulfillment, will certainly be a priceless gift to him, to the Lord. Gentiles are compared here to pure vessels in which, ritual, in which Israel offers uh, as grain offerings to the Lord, as thank offerings to the Lord. The Gentiles who are always considered the dirty, the dirty uh, wicked will be clean vessels because of their response to the message of God and the gospel. And so there will be reestablished on the earth uh, the temple and the restoration of the Zedokian priesthood. It says in verse 21, And I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. And the them has to be, when you understand scripture, the Jewish people, the Jewish men, for priests and Levites to serve in the temple. And there's some explanation of that for sake of time. We're not going to continue that. But look at verse 22 as we come close to closing here. For as the new heavens and new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. That is a precious promise to the nation of Israel. Who remember now, at the midpoint of the tribulation, back there, were converted. The nation as a whole is converted. And they are going, God is going to keep his promise to them. God is going to do what he said. That's very important. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I shall make shall remain before me. We find about the new heavens and the new earth only three places in scripture, and this is one of them. But we find it in Revelation. And we find that the new heavens and the new earth is the broken down universe we have now, destroyed by nuclear fire, and recreated into a new heaven and a new earth, which is going to be the eternal state where the righteous live with the Lord forever. Where the new, new Jerusalem comes down and sets upon that earth. It is the heaven that God is designing for all eternity in the future. And he says, it says, as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me. The new heavens and new earth are the eternal dwelling place of all who put their trust in Jesus Christ. And he's saying that as it is eternal, so will I keep my promises to you for eternity. So shall your seed and your name remain. Just as the new heavens and new earth, this is a simile, comparison with as, okay? Uh, it, his promises will be as the new heavens and the new earth in the sense that as the new heavens and the new earth are eternal, so his promises to Israel will be eternal. And this is very significant because this is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, 
God said to Abraham that he would make him a nation and a great name. And through him, he would bless all the nations of the world. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And that is what he is doing here in that he has now preserved Israel. They've been brought back by the Gentiles to their native land. And God is going to keep the promise he made to them millennia ago through Mo to, to Joseph and his descendants. And so the Lord's name is vindicated during the millennial kingdom. It says, and it shall come to pass from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. All that enter into the kingdom will be saved. Jews, Israelites, and they will universally worship the Lord. But there will be eternal punishment for the wicked. Isaiah 66, 24. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. I have some discussions about this. Uh, I'd like to go into a little more detail, but I don't want to take time to do that. Maybe another time. But the question is, is this talking about the millennial kingdom? To go back to where we were, is this talking about the millennial kingdom or is this talking about the eternal state? Here's the kingdom which is a thousand years right here. And at the end of the kingdom, there's a transition to the eternal state, the new heavens and new earth over here. So people look at this statement, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die. Is this talking about something that's in the eternal state, because it talked about the new heavens and the new earth? Or is this something that's in the millennial kingdom? And the answer is really very simple, although if you don't watch it, you won't catch it, and that, and that is this. It says in verse 22, For as the new heavens and new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. It's not a sequence of time here, but it's an interruption of the sequence for a simile to double promise Israel that God will keep his promise to them. And then it returns to the millennial kingdom which is on the earth. And then we see a new moon festival, a Sabbath festival, which are typical of the a Hebrew worship system that will be reinstituted during the Millennial Kingdom. So it says here, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth. They'll go out of the city into the countryside, into the hillside, around the cities, in the areas where these great battles were fought, where Armageddon was fought where the whole world's population came against God's people and the Lord intervened in the midst of Armageddon and they were all destroyed. And then uh, there was Gog and Magog at the midpoint of the tribulation. A whole confederacy of nations to the north will be killed. Uh, the, the description of the carnage of these battles is unbelievable. When it talks about how deep the blood will, how far, there will be corpses everywhere who have been destroyed by God in Armageddon and Gog and Magog. And it will take a long time. In fact, it says in Ezekiel that it will take seven months or seven years to clean up that carnage. 
Uh, the carnage of this battle remained through the latter half of the tribulation, requiring cleanup during the earlier days of the millennial kingdom. Now, it says they will look upon the carcasses. A carcass is a dead body laying on the ground on earth, okay? It's not an individual in hell. They don't have carcasses. They have a resurrected body that is fit for eternal punishment. So this is bodies that are laid upon the ground as a result of all the great battles. And they serve as a reminder of what happens to people who resist God and his word. Now, this is my concluding thought, so listen carefully here. For they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against them. All the carcasses laying on the ground all around this area of the world will be the carcasses of people who rebelled against God and were killed for. All the carcasses of the wicked. Look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. In other words, not the carcass, but the carcass represents a person. And the carcass is laying here, but we know it's a wicked person destroyed in, by God. And therefore we know that that person who has been taken off, separated from that body is in eternal damnation. So as they begin the millennial kingdom and they go out into the countryside, there'll be a continual cleanup program that's taking place. It says that uh, Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 11 to 16, we don't have time to read those, says seven months will be consumed in the initial effort. But after the seven months, 38, 14, and 15, an ongoing effort continues. It has to be into the millennial kingdom because of the time frame to clean up the carnage from these battles. And it will be a constant reminder to the people of that day who know the Lord, but their children don't, unless they make their own decision for the Lord. It will be a continual reminder of what happens to people who disregard and don't pay attention to God's word. As we close, I want you to think about this. Eternal damnation. Eternal damnation, eternal fire, eternal suffering. I have to say to you, it's beyond my comprehension. Over the last several years, I've faced times of suffering that are more severe than the rest of my life, and certainly not as severe as many other people, but severe enough to make me realize that to be eternally in the condition that I'm in right now would not be exactly what I would appreciate and look forward to. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine people suffering that way, but much, much worse, much, much worse for eternity. How can that be? You know, some godly men have actually changed their doctrine when they got to thinking about an eternal hell. But I point you to this. As you think about people confined to an eternal hell because of their wickedness, think about a God who is perfectly holy and who demands that holiness from us. But as we've learned in the book of Isaiah, seeing that we cannot give it to him, seeing there's no one that can intercede for us to give us that holiness, he sent his own son to become a man 
a God-man, who was God, who was infinite. And by his sacrifice, by his paying the penalty of sin, which is death, and being an infinite person on the cross, he shed his blood, he died as a Savior. And even though he's only on that cross three hours, for an infinite person, the God of the universe, to die in such a way was sufficient to pay the penalty of all your sins so that you can trust in him and pray to God that Jesus Christ be the substitutionary death for your own death you deserve for your sin. And then you realize that God is holy. He actually intervened and gave the solution, died himself to reconcile you to God. And if you reject that, you are rejecting that infinite, holy, perfect gift. That is what consigns you to an eternity of fire in hell. That's the only way you can put it in perspective. And it's the right way. And it's the true way. God calls every one of you today who do not know Jesus Christ to recognize the fact that even who should keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all in the sense that even by one failure you've offended the holiness of God. You need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And you need to make a choice today about what Savior you will serve. There we go. It's your choice. Will you go where your fire will not be quenched? Or will you go trust Christ to be with the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever. Perhaps you know the Lord's your Savior and there's some sin in your life that's standing between you and him. You know, he wants to say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Are you trusting in Christ and putting your sin under the blood of Christ, confessing and forsaking it, that you might not be ashamed of his coming, as it says in 1 John? I challenge you as you think on these things today as we bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord, open our hearts and eyes to understanding the truths of your word. And as we have seen today, the judgmental side of a holy God against a sinful world and sinful people, so we see in the midst of this book of Isaiah, that wonderful chapter 53, which speaks of the substitutionary sacrifice of the servant of God for our sins. May we trust in him this day, both for our salvation and for the power through the Holy Spirit of God to serve him faithfully. Lord, speak to our hearts. Open us to the truth as we sing the song of closing together in Jesus' name. Amen.